everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we are going to talk about the Anand John Alexander case. Anand John Alexander was a rising star in the fashion industry in 2007 when he was arrested and ultimately convicted of one count of rape and many counts of lesser sexual offenses. Although there were no injuries on anyone and he has no history of violence, he was sentenced to 59 years to life in prison. He has currently spent the last 13 years in prison, currently at Donovan State Prison, and recently barely survived a racial hate crime stabbing in late 2019. He is currently suing the state of California for an undisclosed amount. So today on the show, we have an attorney, Tim Milner, and a clemency advocate, Amy Pova, and they're going to be talking about the case. So, um, Tim, welcome to the show. I want to uh, bring you in here and have you briefly describe what your role is, but also I want a little bit more background on the case itself. Sure. Uh, David, thanks for having us today. Um, my name is Tim Milner. I've been a lawyer for more than 35 years. I have tried more than 80 cases. I've been involved with dozens of appeals, and I was originally brought in regarding the Anand John Alexander case by uh, an organization which asked me to look into it. There's a, a terrific organization. It's really a, a conglomeration of groups uh, of, of different people. Uh, the, the name of the group that originally retained me was American Justice Alliance. And that group seeks out to give a voice to people that don't have a voice, especially in, in, the, in the legal system. And, they first contacted me to see whether or not I could assist with regards to doing a, a commutation request on behalf of Anand John Alexander. What, what that means is, is that about two years ago, again, Anand's been in, incarcerated for 13 years now, but about two years ago, I first got involved. I was simply asked, what can we do perhaps to bring the governor's office in to see whether or not the governor's office might be able to assist because it looks like we've got a serious injustice here. So I started doing my due diligence and I started looking into the non-John Alexander case and reading the transcripts and um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm in, uh, in the Los Angeles area, but I got in my car, I drove down and I interviewed a non-John Alexander to see what the story was. And then it's something really strange happened. You know, again, as a lawyer of 35 plus years, I've never volunteered to do anything. I'm a little embarrassed to say that. I mean, 
I'm, I'm in the business of, of trying to do the right thing, but also make money. And when I saw what happened in the Anand John Alexander case, I, I, for the first time in my life, became a volunteer. I actually am now, and have been for the last two years, been to try to take any opportunity I can to, to get the word out as to what has happened with regards to the Anand John Alexander case. And the reason that happened was, was when I was first looking at it, when I was first taking a look at what information I wanted to get to the governor's office, I, I took a look at those things which could possibly go wrong in, in a trial. And, and basically, there's, there's four different areas that can go wrong. There's mistakes or, or misconduct by the prosecution, uh, perhaps by the, uh, the police in gathering evidence or withholding evidence, and um, judicial misconduct, meaning, well, the, the, the judge made some errors, and jury misconduct. And, and in all my years as an attorney, I had never seen a case where all four things had happened. I mean, it was a perfect storm of, of bad things. It was, it was unbelievable to me. And, and so then that's when I started to first get involved. And so we initially did our, our commutation paperwork. And again, that's a request to the governor's office to just reduce the sentence. And then I began to get even more involved. But that's how it started. When, when I first was asked to take a look at whether or not um, it would be appropriate to ask the governor's office for assistance, um, that's where I first found out about these categories. And, and it was egregious to me. And now things have, have, have changed. They've, they've, gotten, they've gotten worse. You know, this isn't just about Anand John Alexander. We've got a, a true worldwide emergency going on. And so we need to we need to get the word out of what needs to be done, because when this is over, we're going to be left with a world that hopefully we can we can start to you know bring ourselves together and improve. Anyway, that's how I got started. I've got um, you know, a lot to say on the subject, but um, that's how I first got involved. Um, so there you go, David. Thanks for asking. Uh, let's bring Amy in on the conversation too. Amy, uh, why don't you talk about uh, a little bit about your background and you had your own experience in the criminal justice system and then how you got involved in this case. Sure. Yes. Thank you, David. Um, so I think for those of us who have been touched personally by the tough on crime era, um, it leaves, leaves an indelible mark on our soul, and you either become part of the solution or you bury your head in the sand and go on with your life. But I was sucked into this vortex of um, an educational curve in 1989 when the feds busted into my home in the Hollywood Hills and uh, threw me in the proverbial hot seat and said that I was looking at 20 to life for conspiracy charges in a drug case, unless I would cooperate and help them uh, basically uh, prosecute my estranged husband's case, which was a drug conspiracy case of um, MDMA, which is otherwise known as ecstasy. Long story short, I wasn't interested in becoming a government informant, so I uh, had to suffer their tactics for two years. Um, which that's too long a process to, to, to discuss, but it took them two years to actually indict me. Took me to Waco, Texas from Los Angeles, and I then was subjected to the county jail for a year until they um, took me to trial. And I received, just as they promised, 24 years. 
for exercising my Sixth Amendment right to a trial. And I'm not sure if the, the audience understands that those of us who go to trial are subjected to mandatory sentencing uh, schemes, which means you're held responsible for the actions of a lot of people that you were indicted with in a conspiracy case that you may not have even known. But that's the way the conspiracy law works. My then husband cut a deal, cut a plea bargain, and uh, received essentially three years probation for um, cooper his cooperation. So what I received clemency from President Clinton after I served nine years in a federal prison and walked out July 7, 2000. Never looked back. I knew I wanted to help other people receive justice through clemency. And so I started the Can Do Foundation and have been working in the clemency space for 20 years. So I was contacted by Anand John's um, family and I spoke with his mother and sister and there was going to be an event in Malibu, I think November of 2018. So that's how I became involved in um, the quest to free Anand John Alexander. So, um, Tim, you know, I've gone through this case as have you and there are a lot of problems with the conviction, the trial of Anand John Alexander. And maybe just kind of walk us through, not necessarily go into great detail, but just just give people the basic idea of the tip of the iceberg in justice here. Sure. And, and you're right. We can't retry a case in the limited time we've got. But it was outrageous to me. Uh, I took a look at this case, and, you know, in terms of wanting to have the governor's office informed as to everything, there were really two big categories to take a look at. And that was everything that went wrong with the trial and why it was, why it was unfair, and then everything that he has done from a positive note for the 13 years that he's been incarcerated, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, just, just, it's incredible. But taking a look at the legal side for a minute, because that's where I got started, the things that went wrong during the trial, you know, the, the, the prosecution, the people, the government, originally came in and started making these wild accusations. And, you know, the jury doesn't know. They, they're, they're, they're hearing this information. They don't know that it's not true when they're being told. Uh, supposedly, there was child pornography on the computer. There was none. Supposedly, um, Anand John had a history of convictions in other states. There were none. It was just a flat-out misrepresentation. So, so we start with the prosecution's misconduct, and then they made allegations that there was drug use involved. There was none. And then they, they, they went down a road, which, which is just really scary. Anand John happens to be from India. And they went down the road of saying they played the reverse race card. They came in and said all the victims are white. The, the, uh, the, the assailant in this particular case. He's not like us. He's a foreigner. He practices strange ways. Strange ways being what? Meditation and, and following the Jewish religion. And oh, but, but he reads his book from right to left. Well, yeah, that's the way he was written. It, it was, it was astounding. And that's just on the issue of the prosecution doing something wrong. 
there's a, a famous case. It, it's the, the Brady case, Brady versus Maryland. It's the early 1960s. And basically, it says if the government has information that can exculpate the two, it tends to show uh, innocence. But they need to hand it over. And subsequent cases went on to say it's not just the prosecution, it includes all of the government, including the police. So besides the prosecution misconduct, we start taking a look at police misconduct. One of the things the prosecution said was these would have no reason to lie. They don't know each other. They don't get together. They're not pre-rehearsing their testimony. Well, the police were aware that there was social media going on where the alleged victims were talking to each other. Well, these are not things that are supposed to come out after a trial. And so we're, we're taking a look at an, a fundamental unfairness that, that happened to a non-judge. And then a third category, uh, judicial misconduct, we're talking about now where, where the judge makes a mistake, and that ties in in this case with juror misconduct. We, we had one of the most bizarre scenarios I've ever seen. We've got this juror, number 12. And juror number 12, he decides to contact a key witness during the trial, a non-judge sister during the trial, and and um, he calls her, he writes notes to her, and what happens next is astounding, because when you've got a juror who has a personal interest in a case, that goes against the constitutional protections of having an unbiased, a fair, and impartial jury. You know the Constitution. U.S. and California Constitution, Fifth and Sixth Amendments, indicate that we're supposed to have a fair and impartial trial. Well, you can't have that if a juror has some interest in the outcome of the case. And this is a juror who votes guilty on some counts and not guilty on others as soon as, soon as he is suspected of, do, of wrongdoing. There is actually a mini trial within the trial where juror number 12 is held in contempt for misconduct, actually convicted of misconduct. Because of what the prosecution did, we were never able to find out, or or, or, or on team then, I wasn't involved back then, but subsequently, we weren't able to, uh, the, the uh, defense team was not able to find out everything juror number 12 was going to say, because the prosecution uh, tipped off juror number 12 and said, you know, don't talk to the defense, and got in the way of us finding out, or side finding out, all the relevant information. But we do know that juror number 12 had a strong desire to, to contact and did contact a key witness. What that normally results in then when you've got juror misconduct is at a minimum a new trial. Well, even though juror number 12 was convicted, there was a, a, a mini hearing, a mini trial within a trial, but the judge determined, well, you know what? We don't really know what happened here. Uh, long story short, Motion for new trial denied. The law says that if there's jury misconduct, there's a presumption of prejudice. And that makes sense. Yet, in this particular case, where the juror pled the fifth, first he denied being contact. It was a snippet of one of the, re- the conversations was recorded. So he got caught in the big lie. He pleads the fifth. Well, what happened? So we don't then find out the entire story. But what's the state of the law? The state of the law is a presumption of prejudice, which makes sense, which means that, again, at a minimum, he should have been granted a new trial. Well, the, the judge did not, um, was not able to, to make a full determination as to what occurred because the fifth was pled. But as a result of that, 
that doesn't mean we presume non-prejudice. The law says otherwise. And that's just the legal aspect. You know, that, that's what, what wrong with the trial. The juror misconduct issue and the judge not, I guess, in my, in my mind at least, appreciating that this means at a minimum you're entitled to a new trial results in a, in a real travesty here. But there's more. And the sad part is that in addition to this perfect storm of things going on with the trial, there's more to the story. I cannot, in the limited time we've got, go through all of the factual um, allegations which were refuted. Some of the victims were sending uh, very provocative pictures and making suggestions, and then and it wasn't until after the fact that they determined, wait, wait, um, maybe, I, I, maybe I changed my mind, maybe I didn't consent. There's a lot on that issue, but that's too much to tackle today. But I will tell you that when we take a look at a, a situation where there's a fundamental unfairness that happens to one individual, it happens to all of us. We're in a crisis now. We have a situation where at some point, and depending on which news station you're listening to, it's either going to be over very soon or very, very late. I mean, it's hard to get correct information here, but at some point, the, the pandemic is going to die down, and we're going to be on the other side. It's, it's like after the Civil War, we're going to need to rebuild, and that can be as troubling as the, the war itself. We need to be prepared, be prepared, to come out on the other side. We need our institutions to work properly. We need the judicial system and the, the, the economic system and, and all of the industries. We need them all to be working when we come out. That's why, even though we're in the middle of this pandemic now, we need to look ahead. When I was turning the paperwork in to Governor Brown's office and then subsequently rolled over to uh, Governor Newsom's office, and it's before him now. We, we, don't have a, we don't have an indication, no final indication, meaning he hasn't been granted the, uh, the commutation that we're, we're uh, very hopeful that we should get. Um, there was more than just saying, here's what we feel went wrong with the, 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 uh, the trial itself. There is everything that he has accomplished in 13 years. I do a lot of commutations. I turn in a lot of paperwork to individuals who, for whatever reason, feel that they should be entitled to have their sentence reduced. Usually, and in the case of Anand John Alexander, there's letters of support from people that know him or certificates of accomplishment as to what he has done since being incarcerated. And usually there are five or six. And when I started doing the uh, commutation paperwork for Anand John Alexander, there were, oh, between 150 and 175 letters of support, and they weren't the typical letters of support. They were from retired judges, politicians, heads of state, people in the entertainment industry who have taken their time to become social activists, uh, people that know him well. Here's one. I, I got one from a security guard talking about what a, what a role model he is. That doesn't happen. I mean, one of, the, one of the guards at the prison. Then I got letters from prisoners themselves. You know, when you're incarcerated, all the prisons, what are we at? 25, 30 different prisons in, in California. They have programs that inmates can take to better themselves or to be prepared uh, when they're eventually released to adjust or uh, um, just to um, become a better person. 
there are a lot of these programs that are offered in the prison system. And Anon John was not just attending those and, and getting certificates of accomplishment in, in, in computer technology and anger management and, and um, art and fashion and everything else. He then started leading some of the classes. He started teaching other inmates issues on how to deal with how to um, control their anger or to meditate or, or, um, or he would put on entire shows with um, dance and, and art or singing. And it, it was incredible. So, so when I was looking at the governor's office saying, here's someone who's deserving because he didn't get a fair trial, it then expanded to more than that. More than that. We have another issue. Besides an unfair trial, and besides the fact that a non-John has accomplished more in, while being incarcerated than any of us, many of us have ever accomplished in a lifetime where we've got access to, to friends and family and, and assets and, and uh, resources. And he's got a mattress and a, and a roll of toilet paper, and, and he's able to accomplish all of these wonderful things in the prison system and garner all this support. So I was able to look at the governor's office and, and tell the governor's office, here's what went wrong with the trial, but here is someone who really deserves to be out. But then the new issue came up. Look what's happening. You know, we're getting a lot of publicity now about prisoners and the fact that prisons are petri dishes. I mean, they are just holding cells waiting for people to get sick. We have a scenario where, although when we go online and we take a look at what the prisons are doing, the right words are there. I represent currently 20 different prisoners, and I talk to a lot of them. And it is amazing to me when the guard comes down the hall, they refer to the guards. Many, many of the different institutions, this, this is happening, they refer to the guards as messengers of death because the inmates themselves, and, and you know this from reading online at a lot of prisons now, we're having a real problem with you know, the, the uh, coronavirus becoming widespread well so they separate the prisoners from each other somewhat but when it comes time to eat for example they might take 150 at a time put them all in the same line sit them down and then they separate them again and then they bring in the guards who come in outside who often do not wear the mask they're supposed to wear or don't have them yet we've got another crisis going on and there are certain inmates who are targets and who are more susceptible to the disease. I was looking online. R.J. Donovan, where um, Anand John is currently housed, who was originally built in 1987, and it was built to hold 2,200 inmates. It currently has 3,900 inmates. I mean, that's, David, you said there'd be no math in this interview. But that's like more than I do want to bring Amy back in here. Um, yeah, sure. I, I was just going to say, because this is a, a perfect time to bring her in, because now we've got not just the legal aspect, we've got the humanistic aspect that needs to be tended to as well. So it'd be a perfect time for Amy to come in and, and, and bring that to the conversation, please. And Amy, you know, what I'm wondering is, how does the commutation process work and what kinds of points are you raising uh, for a commutation? Well, the state 
Uh, every state is different from federal, and in California, they have a um, panel. And I think that Pam would probably be best about the particular rules. I know that um, I think it has to be a unanimous decision, but because I focus mostly on federal, and Pam has been the one to um, file the clemency petition for a non-John. But you know, one thing that I will say is that clemency is so difficult. It, it takes them so long to actually move and make a decision. And we are in a pandemic which creates incredible urgency because once the virus gets into a prison system, it takes off like a fire in a dry barn. I was in prison for nine years, and when the flu season would come around, nobody was spared. Nobody. It, it, it was impossible for us to not contract it simply because of the living quarters and situation, being on top of one another. And, just not having the proper um, uh, protective gear to wear, which is um, hopefully they're passing out masks now. I know at the federal level they are. But we need for the uh, wheels of these bureaucratic agencies, such as the Department of Corrections and Bureau of Prisons, to be able to react more swiftly to emergency, to a crisis, and this is an unprecedented crisis we have with COVID-19. And Anand John has a, a, a laundry list of medical issues that makes him high risk, not the least of which is asthma. So I think we need to uh, create some urgency. And Anand has got to come home by any means possible. He should be uh, on the list of 3,500 prisoners that was touted in the news recently, that California Department of Corrections is going to release 3,500 people. Well, we haven't heard uh, about the process and uh, expediency by which they identify these people. At the federal level, I'm telling prisoners, go talk to your case manager, go talk to your counselor, hand them a uh, home confinement plan, uh, phone numbers to make it easier because people are waiting to hear whether their name is on a list and there's just way too much urgency and I'm sure staff are overwhelmed with having to plow through cases looking for who is at high risk and who isn't. So we need all hands on deck right now and um, certainly Anantan needs to come home yesterday and that's what I'd like to hear more, um, probably, you know, Pam is uh, probably the best candidate to talk about the clemency process here in California. Well, and, and I'll just throw this out kind of generally. So on the one hand, you have this kind of appellate process, and uh, maybe Tim can update us on where that stands because they're going through that process. And then on the other hand is an appellate uh, is the clemency process. And those are kind of going on concurrently, but they're very different. And so I was hoping somebody would explain how they're different and, and what you're looking for in an appellate process or a post-conviction process versus a clemency process. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd love to address that, David. It's a great question. These two processes are completely separate. In my opinion, the judicial, the legal process has basically abandoned a non-John so far. 
I mean, seriously, he won all of his initial fights with hearings and so forth. But since his conviction, they basically turned his back on him. They're not listening, in my opinion, as to what the law clearly is. And so that legal fight, he's got a separate team, separate from me, that is ongoing with regards to trying to have the judicial system wake up and pay attention. And not just to the Imam John case, but to the big picture that Amy just talked about. Separate from that is the commutation process, and that's the governor's office. The governor has a large staff. The paperwork is turned in to the legal staff, and the, the staff there makes recommendations. But ultimately, it is the decision of the governor himself. So when we use the word clemency, we're talking about some, some means of reducing the sentence. There's a pardon where, it's, okay, the entire sentence is now wiped out, or what is more typical, an actual commutation, which is a lessening of a sentence. And remember, even though, we, as you said in the beginning, there was no evidence of physical violence here, we have this situation where Nanjan is incarcerated 13 years already. His medical condition, I mean, asthma is, is one of the worst things you could possibly have as a, as a precursor to the coronavirus. But in addition, we've got to remember, he's been attacked twice, attempts attempt on his life twice by violent prisoners. He's not a violent prisoner. He's a level two. Level fours were able to attack him. And, and he was stabbed in the face. So he, it's not just for medical reasons. It's also just because he may get killed if we don't do something. Something Amy was just talking about a moment ago, the number of people that are being released, you know, nationwide. Well, it sounds like a lot. We hear a number like 3,500. If you take a look at how many people are being released from R.J. Reynolds, in the next 60 days, R.J. Reynolds is, going, is scheduled to release 55 people, about half in 30 days and about half 30 days later. That's out of 3,900. In other words, when you take a look, oh, well, the nonviolent prisoners are being released, or the, the, the ones that are most likely to get coronavirus are being released. No, they're not. We've got a, um, a, a, a very dangerous situation, and the situation is in a group of people who don't have a voice. A lot of us are home. A lot of us are scared, but trying to stay optimistic. Imagine for a second if you're a prisoner. You're, you're, you're confined, all right, but you're not next to your loved ones who care about you. And during the course of the day, you then are going to be standing next to hundreds of other inmates. Kind of they put them all together with cow time. They crowd them all together. Well, I don't care what they say they're doing. This is a, this is a, a, a crisis. This needs immediate attention. I tip my hat to Governor Newsom because in California, he had the foresight take a look at the state and say, no, we're shutting down. And if you think about it, in hindsight, okay, it looks like a pretty easy decision. It couldn't have been. He's telling people, stop working, stop taking money, stay home. And he did it early. He did it first. And it was very courageous in hindsight. Now, now we all say, boy, was he right. He probably saved thousands of lives by getting California to shut down early and start doing the social distancing and and they're washing the hands and getting the word out, probably saved thousands of lives. And that's helping a lot of people, but it's not helping the prisoners. They don't have a voice. It's just us. That's why, even though we're, we're informal and we're small talking here on, uh, on this podcast, we've got to remember, as, as Amy pointed out, this is life and death. If we just wait now 
and then see, oh, here's what we could have done. People are going to die. Prisoners are going to die. The, the setup right now is, is unfair. We need some forward-thinking visionaries to help out. And so uh, we've got to get the message out, David. And, 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 that's, and that's why we're here. And I want to go back to another point here because, um, you know, and, and this was raised last month when uh, all of us met with Assemblymember Shirley Weber down in San Diego. We're in the middle of the Me Too movement, and this is a sexual assault case. In a lot of ways, you know, um, I hate to say it, but, you know, if this were a murder case, it might be actually a little easier to deal with than uh, than a rape case. So how do we deal with, uh, you know, a case where a man's accused of, uh, of raping women? We believe that he's wrongfully convicted, but uh, in the middle of uh, the Me Too movement. Boy, you're taking the bull by the horns on, on that one, David. Me Too has done some wonderful things. Let's get real. The people in power have taken advantage of people who are not in power for ages. And when it comes to the issue of sex, the taboo subject, it is usually, not always, usually men taking advantage of women. So what happens then when someone gets accused, and there's a lot of evidence out there, we've got Cosby, we've got Weinstein, there's a lot of evidence out there of, of misdoing. What happens then when someone is factually innocent? There's a taboo. You know, if someone is accused of, for example, in on John Alexander's case, well, there's, there's child pornography on his computer. You can't unring that bell. You, know, you can't put the bullet back in the gun. The jury hears that, and they're, okay, you know, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm going to be convicting this guy. The stigma is attached. The truth eventually comes out. There was none, zero, on the computer. And the computer they had was somebody else's anyway. But on top of that, the computer they were pointing to didn't have any child porn on it. So what did we do? It takes thinking people. It takes people who are willing to address taboo issues and take the bull by the horns and, and fix them. So there's no easy answer to that one, David. It's, it's, it's a stigma. Once you've been accused of a sexually related crime, it's very, very difficult then to um, get a fair trial. It just is. There's, there's, a, there's this presumption. So the Me Too movement has done something terrific. It's gotten the word out there, and, and it's got, given the opportunity to, for women who might have been too afraid to speak up earlier but what happens then when you get a case like ours where somebody's accused but falsely accused? And what happens to a case like ours where separate from the fact that factually the evidence points in being factually innocent, he doesn't get a fair trial because of jury misconduct or, or the government withholding evidence. So, you know, it, there, there's no easy answer on this one. But I can tell you that it's important that the system works, and not just for a non-John Alexander. We need the system to work, or people are going to be imprisoned when they shouldn't be, or people are going to needlessly die when they, when they shouldn't be exposed to a dangerous situation. The crimes against Anand John while he was incarcerated are hate crimes. There's no, there's no, there's no mystery on this, and, and he is a target. He's from India, and and and, and the the individuals that have attacked him are clearly individuals who don't care for minorities. And so there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to this one. 
And there's a lot of different reasons why in the case of a non-John Alexander, he should be out. But when we're taking a look at, at, at the, the big picture and how it affects the system, I think it just takes us all back for a moment. We just have to think a little deeper and care a little bit more and, and look at each individual case. But we can't sit and do nothing. If, if we continue to do that, then we're going to have more lives lost and we're going to have more people wrongfully sitting in jail for the rest of their lives when they belong out. And Amy, um, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on this? Oh, goodness, which part? Um, the, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that initially I agreed to speak on a panel at an event that was thrown in honor of Anand John Alexander's freedom. And after hearing him, who uh, he's just um, a very convincing individual because he's nailed it down every which way from, from, from Sunday. So I was deeply moved by the injustice of this case. And I consider it to be a responsibility uh, as a person who's walked the path, who has incurred injustice myself. Um, I've sat on a prison bunk, um, suppressed tears, and sometimes um, went ahead and, and shed tears, uh, which is not an easy thing to do in a women's prison, much less a men's institution, as an John knows. It's a heartbreaking situation that lasts last an endless amount of time, where not only is he suffering, but his family is suffering, and those of us who are seeking justice for him suffer in anguish every single day. So again, uh, what's frustrating to me is that it seems when we have cases like Anand John Alexander where it's very well documented that there was malfeasance that occurred in this case, sometimes it seems like it becomes even more difficult to get other people who are part of the establishment to sign off. Uh, simply because there there becomes some degree of resistance to to put your fingerprint, your seal of approval on this case that yes, malfeasance occurred. Um, I've talked with Anandan, and what is remarkable about him is that he also expresses remorse for somebody who, frankly, should be very angry at a system that gave him 59 years uh, for trumped up charges, and yet he has had very humbling conversations with myself and others about, could I have done things differently? Yes. Is there an environment of promis promiscuity in that industry? Yes. I modeled myself when I was in my 20s. I am not blaming anyone, but I know how things can escalate. And this is a case that deserves some attention and outrage by our society that we can't put up with this anymore. We cannot put up with cases that can, are so well documented. Um, and, and, and Tim has done such a beautiful job of covering all the details in this case, which, by the way, is a very laborious effort to plow through transcripts. It's one of the you know, most torturous things uh, an individual can do, which is to have to plow through endless paperwork 
looking for the answers after the fact. And we have this case absolutely nailed down as one where the amount of time that Anantan has already served is an insult to justice. So I just would like to see the public outcry and the effort to expose um, this case and get it in, in a higher profile category, which is already high profile, but it just stumps um, one, one's ability to, to be able to go to sleep at night, um, knowing that a non-gun is a victim. Um, and, and so are the people who alleged or, you know, testified against a non. Um, we need a resolution to this and, um, it can't come soon enough. Thank you. Um, so I want to share kind of very briefly um, my thoughts on this case um, because I was asked to look into this case a little over a year ago. And, you know, I think uh, the one thing I disagree slightly with Tim is unfortunately, you know, while this is an egregious case, it's not the most egregious case I've ever seen. And, and that, that's not downplaying this case. It's upplaying just how bad our criminal justice system is. For instance, in the last week, I have interviewed for this podcast two attorneys, one in North Carolina who's with the uh, Duke Center for Wrongful Convictions, and they are trying to free a man who has been in prison for 44 years for rape in North Carolina. And I interviewed uh, a female attorney from the Innocence Project in San Diego um, who represented a woman who was just commuted, actually, by Governor Newsom uh, in an arson fire from 1989. And, and those cases are egregious, and they've also been in prison for a long time. Now, when I always view these wrongful conviction requests with a little bit of skepticism because I think you have to. You have to look at these cases very carefully because you don't want to say, oh, well, this, uh, these people are saying that this guy is innocent, therefore he's innocent. I always come to the conclusion in an honest way. And what stands out to me are several of the points that Tim made earlier. The first thing is the prosecutorial misconduct, the fact that the the appellate or the uh, prosecuting attorney is arguing that, well, these women are all telling the same story and none of them know each other, therefore they must be telling the truth. When she's sitting on evidence that they concocted this story. They admit to concocting this story. They admit that they are going after this guy and trying to get revenge on him. And this is all hidden from the defense at the time of trial, and it's only discovered by complete and total accident. And the second thing, and this is an article that we wrote uh, last fall, was that... uh, Here's this attorney, and, and this is, you know, several years ago, but it's still, you know, 2008 Los Angeles County, 
and, and she's playing the race card and she's talking about it. Um, here's one comment she makes to the jury. Let's look at the similarities between these girls. What do you notice about them? I notice as being a minority that they're all white and I notice that they're all young. And then she plays the race card against somebody of Indian background playing on the stereotype that uh, they, the, the women are nice and clean and pristine and Anand John is this dirty, smelly, pigsty-ish Indian. It's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. So, you know, here we have this case, and unfortunately, uh, as, as we know, the legal system is absolutely stacked up against people that uh, are wrongly convicted. The case in, in North Carolina, um, they were originally denied a new hearing by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, a, a small panel of that. They finally, based on the dissent on that panel, decided to hear the full case that's going to happen at some point as soon as COVID goes away. And the case out of uh, Orange County ends up uh, – being denied by the appellate court and basically the commutation route becomes the path of last resort. Anand John's case isn't quite there yet, but it's going to be there. And, and as both Tim and Amy point out, this is a dangerous time. These are innocent people in prison. The system doesn't work and their lives are in danger. His life's in danger because he's getting beaten up, and his life's in danger because he, everybody is facing this horrible disease. Any closing thoughts from you guys? Well, I think you, you put it well, David. It, 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 it is time, even though we've got a lot on our plate because we all have to deal with the pandemic, we have to stop and give a voice to those that don't have one. You know, you pointed to the cases that are also horrific because of the, the length of time that those people have already spent. And that's, this is what's going to happen to Anand John Alexander unless we rescue him. And, and so uh, he's been in 13 years, and his sentence is a draconian 59 to life. We need to help him. We need to help all prisoners who have got a situation where their lives are in danger. Whatever they were sentenced for, it wasn't supposed to be a death sentence. And now it is. So we need to address this. I would like to take a moment and just thank Amy, because sometimes when I go through the prosecutorial misconduct and, and jury misconduct, et cetera, I forget that there's a, a real humanistic aspect to all of this. And she lived it. She went through it. She knows. She feels it. So I just wanted to put in a quick thank you to, to Amy for, for doing such a nice job and, and making sure that the message is getting out. So thank you, David. Thank you, Amy. Amy? Amy, your, your, your thoughts? Well, I really just want to uh, mirror what, what Tim and your, you, David, have already said. But just so people understand, um, there was such energy behind the Pep on Crime era, and prosecutors were pumped up, and uh, I believe incentivized to get as much time out of every conviction as they possibly could. 
I know that Anand Gan is a state case, but it's the same temperament, the same ideology. And during the Reagan-Bush administration, there was a Thornburg memorandum that was sent out to all the uh, assistant United States attorneys in this country, which said that if you do not cooperate, if, uh, excuse me, if a, a, a defendant in a case will not cooperate, they were to pump them up the sentencing guideline chart as high as they could with enhancements and get the most time they possibly could out of anyone who dared to exercise their Sixth Amendment right to a trial. And this is absolutely uh, everything that our Constitution uh, fights back for, which is to give people the right that we um, are supposed to have to uh, defend ourselves. And I think that Anand John is a victim of a system that was incentivized to overly punish anyone who, who dared to exercise their Sixth Amendment right to a trial. So uh, I'd like for people to um, understand that we have to roll back that mentality. And um, hopefully Anand John will be home soon where he belongs. Thank you, Amy, and thank you, Tim. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Hi, Randy. How are you? Welcome to our show. I, I, I'm well. Thank you very much. Um, and so where are you, Randy? I am at uh, Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. And how are things going over there? Uh, well, not very well. Um, it seems like all the policies put in place are to separate prisoners and or lock them down when we, it is already established that none of us are carrying the COVID-19. And uh, none of the staff members entering the prison uh, are wearing masks or any other personal protective equipment that would obviously protect us from them. And they're only being asked a couple of questions as a screening process. In fact, uh, there are some that actually live in Mexico that come here to work every day. Wow. So we're quite concerned. So basically... About our close proximity to staff. So basically, um, right now... Um, the prison is supposed to be locked down, so there's no visitors, uh, and the only people coming in and out are staff, correct? That's correct. Have they done any testing of the uh, people incarcerated or of the staff to determine whether or not they are carrying the virus? No. No. They're simply asked a couple of questions, and I guess their temperature is taken. Um, and, and really, that, that's not enough, because uh, it takes several days for any symptoms to occur, so they could be carrying it and giving it to us. 
but they're separating us as if we're the ones that are going to give it to them, trying to keep us from giving it to each other when we don't have it. Right. So you guys are being separated from each other. Are you, uh, how are you dealing with things like meals? Well, they, they send everybody to the chow hall. And so we're in line. We're, you know, very close together there. Um, we're in a pod with about 56 inmates. Uh, but I mean, we're okay with each other because we don't have it. <laughs> but, uh, I was just asking the CEO yesterday, uh, this morning. I said I watched a bunch of CEOs pass out masks to other CEOs, but none of them are wearing their masks. And, one CEO I spoke to said, well, what does the mask? I said, well, it keeps your droplets from coming in contact with me when you're talking to me. They enter the, our cells when they count us. They, we get close to them when we're handed out our mail, but they're not wearing any equipment. And that is our concern. And to your knowledge, no uh incarcerated person um has tested positive for the virus at this point that is correct especially on the yard i'm on Our, this yard i'm on is actually separate from the other four yards at donovan and we know nobody here has it this is facility e and no staff that i can see are wearing any masks but they keep on, in fact, there's a memo on the wall here that says the protocol they're using is a protocol for H1N1 and flu-like illnesses. But that's after an inmate already has it. That protocol doesn't keep us from getting it from staff. What is morale like among... I'm looking at a memo from Sacramento right now. What's that? What is morale like? Oh, it's, it's very low because inmates are being made to well we feel like we're being punished okay and when things like this happen it disrupts normal daily life of a prisoner who tries to stay busy and now we're not being able to do that uh i have a memo right here from sacramento that is talking about the program but none of it protects us from the outside world thank you randy Okay. Thank you guys for your time. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. On the line, Carson. And Carson, can you tell us um, kind of your role in all of this? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am here with Awakened, which is a socially and spiritually conscious uh, lifestyle brand that uses approaches and products using modern technology to enhance protection from diseases and maximizing healthy, holistic lifestyles. So super needed during this time with the pandemic. I heard about what the company was trying to do to combat the issues, but also to get back and was like, very excited to get involved. Um, right now, we've got 
donations of volunteers from all over the world contributing their talents, which includes many visionary designers um, coming up with creative solutions. And one example is Adnan John, who has been amazing, not only using his design background, but um, his Indian heritage and Ayurvedic holistic background to create some amazing ergonomically functional fashion and personal protective equipment that protects not only in the moment, but helps you long-term, which is the point of Ayurveda. Um, and that's just one of the, the many things we've got going on. But 50% of our profits go to charitable causes, especially ones that need the kind of products we are making. Um, but even more on the forefront of that is we are actively seeking donations and volunteers so that we can donate sanitizer, especially alcohol-free sanitizer that can get into prisons and soap to those in need. Um, including the homeless population, anyone economically challenged, medical communities, and with the Department of Corrections permission, uh, prisons as well. As you know, it's a ticking, ticking time bomb over there, and we really would like to help combat the crisis. Um, right now, we have a website. It's awaken.net. Awakened is spelled with two Vs, so that's A-V-V-A-K-E-N-D.net. And you can go there to be a part of our GoFundMe campaign and help us save people, hopefully. Excellent. And how did you get involved with Anand's case? It was through mutual friends. Um, and we, I just, we were working for a while. I was learning about the case and was horrified by everything going on. And then the pandemic happened. And um, I was able to get involved in another way through Awakens, which is really exciting to me because I have a passion for health and wellness as well as getting back and um, helping fight to get justice for people that need it. So it's, it's nice to be involved on many fronts. Well, very good. Um, why don't you give that address again so people can get involved? Okay you can go to www.awakened.net and awakened is with two v's instead of a w so that's a v v a k e n d dot net excellent thank you carson you've been listening to everyday injustice i'm your host david greenwald join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.